Welcome to Portraits of Honor. We stand in the swiftly fading shadow of our World War II veterans and heroes who united for a single purpose, to honor life, liberty, and justice for all. They were soldiers and sailors, airmen and mechanics, nurses and pilots, radio operators, ordinary people who did extraordinary things. Our mission is to preserve their stories, to bring their experiences to life for a new generation. This is our tribute, our act of honor. Through their words, we explore the essence of honor and remember the sacrifices that were made. For just the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help us preserve their stories. Visit portraitsofhonor.com to learn more. Join us as we journey back in time, as we listen, learn, and remember. This is Portraits of Honor. Let the stories of these heroes begin. This interview is presented in two parts. This is part two. This exciting episode features Jerome Wilner, a World War II bombardier navigator who went from Cornell to the skies of Europe. Jerome defied the odds to survive 30 harrowing missions on B-17s over Germany, surrounded by deadly flak. Hear how his indomitable spirit carried him through the war and peerless bomb runs. From academia to the fierce theater of war, Jerome's story is a testament to adaptability and resilience. This interview was recorded on May 12, 2021 in Rockville, Maryland. What was the, um, the air unit you served with? You might have told me before, but I can't. Or what bomb group and oh, that type thing? Well, it was the 2nd Air Division, 14th Wing, 44th Bomb Group, 68th Squadron. How about that, son? <laughs> By the way, we had a very famous man heading up the 14th wing, which was huge. That was General Jimmy Stewart. Really? I've seen some pictures of him during the ser his service, and uh, I wasn't sure who he served with or, or where. Yeah, he came by once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, and he was he was an accomplished pilot. He flew the big boys. How many missions did you make? Thirty. Okay. Yeah, that had been increased just before we got there. It had been increased from twenty-five. Flew my first mission on November the fourth. We were billeted at the base on October eighteen, and they gave us a couple of weeks of uh, indoctrination. Mm -hmm. Flew my first wish mission to uh, Germany on November 4. Flew my last one on April 18. Were all your missions over Germany, I guess, by that time? Most of them. By that time, it must Most be. of them. A couple of them were, uh, let's see, submarine pens. That's French coast. I think there were two of those until the 8th Air Force gave up because those submarine pens were so thick the bombs didn't do anything to them whatsoever except splash in the water. Uh, now on December 24th, 1944, Battle of the Bulge was going on. We flew a mission to uh, bridges, roads, anything to cut supplies 
that was kind of deep into Germany, and we did the same thing on New Year's Eve. So we got no turkey on Christmas Eve, and we got no turkey on, Jan on New Year's Eve. <laughs> but most, I, I would say 98%, 98, 99% of the missions were over Germany or German-held ter territory. The, the mission to Ploesti oil fields, for example, was not Germany. Um, thank God I didn't fly that one, because that one came out of Africa. Fifth, that was Fifth Air Force, flew that out, out of the desert from Africa. Not many of them got back. Yeah, we, were, we, we got over there flying in hard times, because it was not until much later that uh, the Mustang, the North American Mustang P-51s came over. We had, we had no air cover. Once we crossed over the French coast and started to get over France, we lost our air cover. Because those Thunderbolts, those P-47 Thunderbolts, couldn't, fly, couldn't, couldn't go in any deeper and still get back to England. But those 51s, they were, they were the source of, the, of, of what became heard from every, every American bomber after that. Hello, little friend. Yeah, they could fly farther and, and have drop tanks for extra fuel. Yeah, as soon as we saw those tanks go, we knew there was enemy in the area. Everybody on your guns. We had, we had two, four, six, we had eight guns. Nine. Stinger. Yeah. Um, well, tell me about a little more about the uh, the uh, fighters who would come at you, and also about the flak that you encountered. And you said you went down. Or uh, oh, that gave right there. There, the Germans were so good. Those the German anti-aircraft batteries were so good. They put fear into the heart of everybody flying. And for the most part, they were using the same 88 millimeter guns that could reach us up at 25,000 feet that they used against tanks on the ground. Mm -hmm. I, I tell you, all credit to the Germans when it comes to, to mechanics and being mechanical and, and, and making things. Man, they were good. They were good. And the the the, the 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 flak itself gave rise to the expression when asked at debriefing after a mission, how was flak in the area? Everybody said the same thing. The flak was so thick you could walk on it. There were two calibers, uh, 88 millimeter and 155. Or 155? That sounds too big. 105? No, 155. When they blew, you knew it. You could tell the 88 millimeter flak because when they blew, you actually saw a figure eight. Oh yeah? In the smoke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, white hot pieces of steel flying all over the place. It brought down more American bombers than anything else. Their planes, their planes couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't touch the numbers. And the planes were good, but they couldn't touch the numbers that the flak brought down. Because the flak guns could put up an umbrella 
the entire sky, not over a target, but in an area completely surrounding the target, would be just covered with, with black smoke, black and white smoke. And you could see the puffs, you could see the puffs ahead of you as you're approaching. And you know you're going to be flying right smack dab into it. You can't go this way and avoid one and then go back this way and avoid that one. Yeah. You got to fly straight ahead because you're on a bomb run. Mm -hmm. When you're on a bomb run, you don't move in any direction unless you're forced to, you know. Yeah, so the, the flak was, one word was terrible. That's about all I can say about it. And was your plane hit? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, on my on our, on our second mission, the uh, <clears throat> the radio setup in the plane was kind of silly. The antenna, there are two two antennas. Uh, I'm not sure what how high frequency and low frequency or or something like that. Could that be possible? Radio. Back at the time, I well, I mean, I'm using I'm using terminology that I'm not familiar with. Anyway, there were two antennas stretching from above the cockpit, and each one was stretched back and attached to the tail mm -hmm. rudders. Okay, yeah. Okay, on my on our second mission, a piece of flak hit one of the antennas, cut through it. It wrapped around the vertical stabilizer. You can't control it. Can't control. Go up and down. Still got ailerons and elevators. Yeah. No verticals. Well, okay, that's that's fine for flying straight and level. But now we're over England and there's the base, thank goodness, and all we need to do is land. <laughs> well, in order to land, you've got to fly the pattern. Okay, well, <clears throat> my pilot, as far as I'm concerned, was the best, got to be careful here what I say, pilot in the Air Force. He manipulated that boxcar completely around the pattern into, a, into the final approach using the engines. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so now we're on the final approach. Okay, now you've got to, while you're landing, you've got to cut back speed and adjust for wind. Yeah. <laughs> you need your rudders to do that. Mm -hmm. You don't have it. So he's doing that. He's landing with the engines. He's gunning, he's gunning number one, and he's pulling back, and he's gunning three, and, and this is the way he's landing. Finally on the ground, and we're taxiing out and as we're taxiing out, we're almost to the end of the runway. And I'm sitting in the nose turret. And I'm looking up and had that chair right there. And this is the airplane. I'm staring right in the face of the Padre standing there with his hands like this. <laughs> because if we had gone three feet further, either he falls to the ground real fast and goes underneath or some heavenly spirit lifts him up real fast that was the first time yeah we, we were we were we were hit plenty mostly mostly by uh, plane by gunfire uh -huh. yeah we had to land 
I'm not sure the number of the mission, but we had to land after a long mission into deep Germany, deep into Germany. On the way back, we got shot up. I guess we must have lost two engines, as I recall. We landed at Metz, which is right on the border of Alsace-Lorraine and Germany, right, right there, almost on a dividing line. And it was in German hands at that time. But we had to land or else, because we, uh, we knew there was a field there. So we landed, only to find out that Patton's Third Army had taken Metz the day before. Oh, wow. But <laughs> <Good> luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You didn't find that well, out until afterwards, right? Yeah. Well, you found that out later, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we, uh, we couldn't fly out, we could not fly out of there because of, of damage, because the, the engines themselves had been damaged. So we had to train from there to Paris. And then we were told that we'd have to stay in Paris overnight because we had no air transportation back to England until the next day. Well, <clears throat> during the hard landing, somehow or another, because we had, at that time, we were accustomed to wearing our Class A uniforms under our flying, our heated flying suits. I had taken off my flying suit. I was in my regular dress, uh, uniform. I had ripped the leg, the pant leg, on my left leg from thigh all the way down to cuff. Caught it on something. Okay, we got to a, a taxi cab and None of us could speak French or understand it, but we knew the name of the hotel to which we had been assigned. So we, we hailed a cab and we asked the cab, the cab driver, hotel, whatever it was. And he said something in, in German about the Bahnhof. Well, not only did we know no French, but we didn't know any German either. <laughs> okay. But... We're asking you, what the hell is a Bonhof? Where is a Bonhof? Oh, maybe that's the hotel. No, turns out Bonhof in, in, in German is roadhouse. And when they say Bonhof in German, they mean the railroad station. The hotel was right across from the railroad station. <laughs> and he was telling us that the hotel is right across from the railroad station. Okay, fine. We get to the hotel. Ah, uh, I'm ready for bed. Not my pilot. Not not Boston <laughs> Bill Dolan, and not Charlie Hall from Charlie Hall was from Georgia, and not Bill Zalmer, the navigator. They're for, they're on for a night on the town in Paris. And here's me with my pants ripped open from hip to ankle. So I said, I had to say, have a good time, guys. I'll, uh, I'll sit at the bar here and have a drink, which is what I did. But very shortly after that, seeing I'm sitting there all by myself, I'm joined by one of the chambermaids. <laughs> so she sat with me and drank all evening until the guys came back. Really? That was our night in Paris. Next morning, we were flown back to base. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it happens, you know, and if it's going to happen that way, 
fine. I mean, uh, crash landing is not always what it sounds like. Crash landing did not always necessitate a big, ugly crash. Sometimes you just get, get hit and have enough damage to that just forces you down. Yeah, as long as or whatever. But. As long as we could make it back over the water, from land to land, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what we hoped for. Wasn't the kind of life I'd wish for my children. No, well, I don't think any of us would. Um, would you do it again if you had to? Enlist, you mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a question of doing the right thing for me. Yeah. Oh, sure. I, I don't know if I'd do it the same way. I don't know if I would en enlist in the Air Force. You know, I might enlist in the Navy <laughs> or something. I don't know. I really don't know. I think I did the right thing by enlisting in the Air Force, or as I should say, I did not enlist in the Air Force. I enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps. <laughs> Where were you when the war ended? In England. Okay. Yeah. At least the European theater uh, part of it. Right. We, we didn't come home until it, the war was officially over in Europe, and that was, what, first week in May, May 5th or something like that? Yeah. yeah. And then we were able to fly our own planes home. And that, that took a little longer because <clears throat> we stopped twice on the way home. We, 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 uh, we jumped off from uh, Scotland and went to Iceland first, Reykjavik, mm -hmm. and stayed there overnight. And what a wind we ran into. They had to sandbag the planes. The instant we landed, they had to sandbag the planes. And then the next day we took off for Greenland. And I have to say, I never saw anything more beautiful in my life than standing on the base. First of all, the grass in Greenland was the greenest grass I have ever seen anywhere. But. It's not the grass that I'm referring to right now. It's standing on a base and looking up at the Great Glacier, which apparently doesn't exist anymore as the way it was because of climate conditions and so on. But it was magnificent. Somebody made a suggestion that, why don't we go climb on the glacier? Yeah. I wasn't having any of that. No, I... I just as soon had a hot chocolate and said, I'll wait for you here. <laughs> then we returned to, uh, where did we land on the way home? Massachusetts? Yeah. And then a two-week sojourn in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, waiting to be sent to the Pacific. And that's when it got really hairy, having seen and heard and everything about the Pacific War. Mm -hmm. We didn't want any part of it. And we told them so, I don't want to go there. It would have been in B-29s. So what they did was divide our entire large group into three parts, alphabetically. And after one week, they posted the names of the first third for shipment to a base in Texas for teaching in B-29s. 
Then after another week, they posted the second third for shipment to a base, a B-29 base in Texas for training for Pacific. And then another week later, they posted the third group. And I was so happy my name began with W. Sent home for discharge. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they sent me and a whole bunch of other guys. I came back to Fort Meade. And that's where I received my separation. And now you have the rest of the story. Sure did. <laughs> Used to be a famous commentator who said that. Yeah, I wonder who that was. <laughs> um, just briefly, let me get into, uh, you know, what did you do once you were discharged and uh, were separated and... Oh, I went back to school. Okay. Finished a year and a half of school. Okay. Yeah. Made a, made a big show out of walking the campus and my discharge was not affected, effective until October 9. And I had to go back and finish a full year and another half. Mm -hmm. Well, when I first went back, uh, it was in uh, the spring semester. And so I could wear my uniform till October. So I made a big show out of that with my 50 mission crush hat and everything. <laughs> Wish I still had that hat. But uh, yeah, I finished school and then it was simply a question of um, you know, going out to earn a living. Yeah. And I began to work for uh, federal government. And except for a brief instant, where I uh, went into the restaurant business with my father for a year and a half until we had to sell it, I, uh, I wound up working for the Food and Drug Administration for another 30 years as a microbiologist. Well, that sounds pretty good. When did you get married? Got married in March of 1949. Yeah, I think we have the <laughs> license here. <laughs> and uh, how many children? Two. John and his brother. And the family, of course, has expanded to two grandchildren mm -hmm. and eight great-grandchildren. Very good. I'm waiting for one of them to get married and have my great-great-grandchild. <laughs> that would be incredible. Wow. I think my great-great-grandfather served in the Civil War. <laughs> well put. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, overall, uh, I think I've had an interesting life. It hasn't been just one thing constantly for my entire life. Yeah, that's true. Uh, not all good, I might add. Uh, putting the war aside, there have been other bad times, but that's, generally speaking, that's life. That's true. It is. Ups and downs, good and bad. The important thing is I'm still here. Yeah. Do you have any, any kind of life advice you would give to younger generations? I have to say no. You know why? because my advice in the past never has seemed to go so well. 
no matter to whom it was given. So I stopped giving advice and I started taking it. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, what do you, what would you attribute to your, your long, long life? Well, first of all, and most important, I think probably, genes. My mother lived to just, just shy of her 90th birthday. And um, what caused her death was not age. So she, if she hadn't lived where she lived, I'm sure she would have lived a lot longer. And a lot of, a lot of her attributes are in me. Hair, for instance. She always had a, I was going to say, not a thick head of hair, but a, a head of thick hair. <laughs> Yeah. I try to be grammatically correct at all times. <laughs> but yeah, she, she, uh, her genes are mostly in me, and a lot of them are in my sons, and in one or more of the children who come after, I see some of, I see some of my genes in Jason. I do. And Nathan. Anyway, uh... Not only, not only genes, but I've done some things in my life, or I should say I've not done some things in my life that I probably should have done if I wanted to enjoy my life a little more than I have. And I'm speaking about pure enjoyment now. Uh, I have, I've never been the one to actually take chances. For example, I've never ridden a bicycle. Really? Never owned a bicycle. At one point in my life, on, on, on one birth anniversary, that's a word you may feel free to use any time. Okay, thank you. Birth anniversary. My father offered me a choice. Would you rather have a bicycle or a radio? I took the radio. At one point, I bought a we bought a bicycle for our older son, and at some point, this was in Devere Court. I tried to ride his bicycle. <laughs> I fell off. Okay, enough of that. Why would I want to try to fight a war at, at 25,000 feet in an airplane? I have no idea. You talk about taking chances, but there was a cut and dried reason for that. There's no cut and dried reason for me to try bungee jumping. <laughs> True. <laughs> I won't do that. So I've missed a lot. John can tell you, I have missed a lot in my, in my life, okay? On the other hand, that's partly why I'm safe and sound, so to speak. Could be. <laughs> you give up something, you get something. Yeah. I've gotten health, strength, and long life by living the life I've lived. And that's about the way I can put it. This podcast is a charitable supported public service. To learn more about the veteran featured on this podcast, please go to portraitsofhonor.com.
There you'll find more stories, portraits, and ways to be part of this act of honor. Every day, a few hundred World War II veterans pass away, and soon they'll all be gone. For the cost of a few cups of coffee each month, you can help us support the mission to give all these deserving veterans their portrait of honor and record and memorialize their stories forever. Please go to portraitsofhonor.com today to make your donation and show your support. Leave us a review and share this episode. By remembering the past, we can inspire a better future. Join us next time on Portraits of Honor.